0: Everyone, just to let you know, uh, we'll start the presentation in about one minute. Thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, just to let you know, we'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. Thank you so much once again for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Fall Prevention, Best Practices for the Three Main Types of Hazards, sponsored by J.J. Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health, and I'm moderating today's event. Thank you so much for joining us, and before we get started, there are a few housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise product or publication does not mean the Council of the Magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. If you have a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question and press the send button. We welcome your questions at any time during today's event. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We might not get to every question, but the good news is unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you may also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our speakers. With us today are Mark Stromey and Edwin Zaleski. Mark is a senior editor with J.J. Keller and develops content for various J.J. Keller publications specializing in OSHA construction and general industry regulations. Mark is also an authorized OSHA outreach construction trainer and a walkway auditor certificate holder. His areas of expertise include workplace violence, electrical safety, fall protection, forklift compliance, walking working surfaces, and aerial and scissor lifts. Edwin is also a senior editor at J.J. Keller Edwin reaches, chis and creates content on a variety of safety-related topics and contributes to several products, specializes in issues such as walking, working surfaces, powered industrial trucks, and injury and illness record-keeping. Again, we thank you all for tuning in this presentation. Mark, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away.
1: Very good, Alan. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. I know we're all busy. So we're just gonna lean right into this. I'm gonna start out with uh, a little information about JJ Keller training. Uh, Our training solutions cover a broad range of topics and are available in a variety of formats, training on demand, DVD, streaming video, video books, and more to help you meet your needs. Backed by our regulatory experts and using the latest techniques and technology, our training solutions give your employees the proper instruction they need. So thank you for joining us today. So we're gonna start out here with this slide. I'm gonna talk about what we're gonna cover. Falls, all right. So they have really been a leading cause of fatalities and injuries in the workplace. I don't care what industry you work in. So that's really why preventing falls is so important. How you go about that though, that's the tough part. So we're gonna cover that today. Ed and I are gonna talk about a couple different things. You can see the categories on the slides. Uh, So really in order to reduce the risk of falls, it's important you're aware of the situations that can pose fall hazards. Now there are three main types of hazards. You can see the bullet points there. Unsafe environment, unsafe equipment, and unsafe behavior. We're gonna talk about those. And then we're gonna cover the three best practices or strategies to prevent falls. And that would be the three bullets there, eliminate hazards, use passive methods. What would those be? That would be a guardrail, a cover, maybe a fall restraint system. And then we're gonna talk about administrative controls. That would be the safety monitoring, maybe warning uh, lines, maybe you're using designated areas. So keep in mind, if those aren't enough to prevent a fall, you must provide your employees with a personal fall arrest system. And not only that, of course, you have to train them how to use it and how to inspect it. So we'll cover how to do that too. And then finally, we're gonna talk about at the end, if there is a fall, heaven forbid, uh, we'll discuss having a plan to rescue the worker. All right, so Moving on here, what are the differences in falls? What are the different types? Um, And why we care about this is some are more severe than others. So if you think about falls on the same level, this person tripping in the kitchen here, uh, resulting in her falling to the ground or to the floor, she tripped over that mat there. So uh, it's a slip or could be a trip. These types of things have a high frequency rate. They happen quite often, uh, but typically the severity rate is low. Okay, it can, it can be high, but typically it's, it's lower than what I'm gonna talk about next, which is a fall from an elevation. So certainly if you're falling from one level to another, let's say you're working on a mezzanine and you fall off of that and you fall to the ground below, This doesn't happen as often as a trip, but the severity rate uh, is extremely high. So just a little information on that before I move on. So what happens when you fall from an elevation? Uh, You know, the saying goes, it's not the fall, it's the impact. What I find really interesting is uh, free fall velocity. At impact when falling 20 feet, 20 miles an hour, you're moving. So you're going to hit the ground in less than a second. Now, if you're four feet above a lower level and you step off something, you're gonna hit that lower level in five, or excuse me, 0.5 seconds. So really quick. And then if you fall 100 feet, uh, it's gonna take you two and a half seconds and that would be a terrifying two and a half seconds. Now that we covered that basics, let's get into a little more information about fall hazards. Now, in the beginning, we said that to reduce the risk of falls, it's important to be aware of the situations that can pose fall hazards. We already mentioned this. We talked about unsafe environment, equipment, and behavior. We'll begin with the environment, all right, because a lot of times it's the environment that creates the fall hazard. Now, you can see the image there. Somebody's walking up on a mezzanine, uh, and there's the guardrail is not fully extended. It, it it's missing there, so there's a chance you could fall off that uh, edge to the surface below. There's other examples, of course, of an unsafe environment that can cause a fall. How about uneven surfaces in the walkway? Uh, maybe we have some missing covers or grates, and then things like we see this all the time: trip hazards. Maybe there's some extension cords or something else in the aisle that could cause a fall. So. One thing that we really want to stress now because it is kind of winter in some parts of the country, um, general industry and construction have to deal with snow, mist, rain, uh, ice uh, on an elevated surface could cause it to be slippery and, of course, cause you to fall off. All right, moving on to unsafe equipment. This means the equipment itself creates the hazard. You can see in the image um, here, we've got a personal fall arrest system, it's damaged. So they're putting a do not use uh, sign on it. This is where you really, if you're using this type of equipment, uh, you gotta do some training because you know, sometimes workers, and, and I'm guilty of it too, you get kind of lax when it comes to inspecting equipment, but you know, personal protective equipment is pretty important. Otherwise you wouldn't be wearing it, But when it comes to fall protection equipment, it's very, very important. So we we know that these fall protectant protection harnesses, they can take a lot of abuse. You know, they get thrown around, they're used in environments that can cause degradation, that type of thing. So that's why you really do have to inspect this harness before each use. Another example that I like to use, if, if you're working on a mezzanine and you discover that there's a broken guardrail, of course that's not gonna do you any good. Uh, it's not gonna keep you from falling. Keep uh, instructing your employees and reinforcing that they need to look for and report any fall protection devices like guardrails, warning lines, other equipment that's damaged. You know, Maybe it just doesn't look right. The The issue with this is, because they work in that same area all the time, they might not notice it anymore. That's why when you're doing an inspection of all the areas in your facility, which is something that you should do, you make sure this inspection is done by a safety committee or some other group of employees that don't work in that area, because they're going to see when they come to this, come to the area that they're going to inspect, they're going to see things that the people working there every day do not see it. All right, and then finally, we'll talk about unsafe behavior. So you see in this image the step ladder; it's not locked out uh, like it should be, and the employee looks like he's he she's starting to climb that step ladders and straight ladders. We use those all the time in facilities on construction sites. You know, I've had. People say, well, it's just a ladder. I mean, I don't really need to be trained on it or whatever. And, uh, well, yes, you do. Because, you know, I've heard somebody say, well, I used that stepladder last week and it was fine. I'm not sure what happened to it since when I used it. This time it just collapsed and I fell and injured myself. So here's another one. Uh, The fall protection harness, the leg straps aren't tight and you can imagine if you suffered a fall with this, you could really get injured severely. Uh, This type of behavior seen by employees, I think that don't wear this all the time. Um, Maybe, you know, they're not issued one that they've sized to themselves so that when they put these things on, you know, they're not tight and they're not sure how to use it. So again, this is where effective training comes into play here. To determine if they're doing this right, you really have to watch them. Make sure they put it on, tighten the straps properly. There's a D-ring that's in the back. Uh, that's what the lanyard attaches to. Make sure that's positioned properly between the shoulder leg, uh, shoulder blades. And then the leg straps are properly tightened. Uh, not too tight, but certainly not this loose. And again, training, we can't talk about this enough. You have to make sure each employee has been trained as necessary by what we call a competent person, all right? OSHA uses that word quite a bit. And that a competent person must be qualified in the following areas. Uh, Very important that they know these things, how to recognize the fall hazards in in the work area, how to minimize and eliminate those hazards, then how to correctly install, set up, operate, maintain, disassemble, any fall protection and other equipment you use. And then depending on your location, your state or the city that you're located in, there may be other unique requirements that you need to follow. So we mentioned qualified person. I'm just gonna define that really quick here. OSHA says that is someone who is capable of identifying existing and predictable hazards in the surroundings or working conditions which are unsanitary, hazardous, or dangerous to employees. And this is the important part. And who has the authority to take prompt, corrective measures to eliminate them. So they can recognize the hazards, but they have the ability to either stop work or do whatever it takes to uh, eliminate those hazards. now retraining we get a lot of questions on this um so when do we need, when should retraining be done there's certain regulations that require an evaluation like the forklift uh, reg uh, that's every 3 years but generally you want to do retraining when uh, there's a couple things that uh, occur you can see the three bullets on the slide so you change your environment somehow uh we build an addition and now all of a sudden There's some fall hazards there that weren't there before. Uh, You need to, of course, train on that. So this is where the safety professional has to get involved before that new addition is even planned because they need to make sure that hazards are mitigated. And then after the addition is put on, you have to perform a hazard assessment and you're going to look for things like fall hazards as well as other hazards. And then what about, If you change your workplace systems or equipment, so you install some new equipment that requires your employees to get on top of it, and I think we've got an image or two later on, Ed's going to talk about, they might have to do an inspection, or maybe they have to change a filter or something. So they're certainly going to need training on how to protect themselves, be it with permanent guardrails, or maybe they do have to wear a personal fall protection um, a fall arrest harness, and then they're going to tie off with a lantern to an approved anchor point. And then the last thing I want to mention is uh, what if, you know, you hear, and I, I know safety professionals hear about this all the time, that somebody um, was doing something wrong, unsafe, maybe they kind of uh, forgot about how to do something properly, or they, you know, their understanding wasn't quite there. So, they need definitely need to be retrained um, to do that. All right. So training continues to be one of the most challenging areas for safety professionals. JJ Keller training on demand will help you meet and exceed OSHA's training requirements beyond today's topic. JJ Keller training delivers 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses and streaming video. Excuse me. So because JJ Keller Training is sponsoring today's event, we're offering a complimentary OSHA Training Mistakes white paper uh, when you request more information. Now you can see this poll pop up uh, on the slide. So please go ahead Uh, that's really a good white paper. um, And I think you'll enjoy it. So we will move on, that poll will stay up. And I think Ed is going to speak next.
2: I sure am. Thank you, Mark. And let me add my thanks to everyone for joining us. And again, if you have questions, you can send them in at any time. If you came in a little late, maybe you didn't hear, but we will be saving time at the end of the event for a Q&A session. So if you have any questions, please use that Q&A box and send them in. We will uh, get through as many of them as we can. All right, let me move on to some strategies on preventing falls. Uh, Mark mentioned this earlier. The the ideal is, of course, to eliminate hazards, but that's not always possible. Sometimes you'll use a passive method, like a guardrail or a cover. We call that passive because it doesn't require the employee to do anything. It's just there. And then there might be uh, things like administrative controls. And again, we've got the list here, safety monitors, warning lines. These may not actually stop someone from falling, but they're an administrative. It's not quite as effective, but it's an option for you. So let's talk about the hierarchy of controls. The basic idea, of course, is controlling the hazard at its source. And that's the best way to protect employees. If we can eliminate the hazard or substitute something that's less dangerous, uh, that's the most effective. But it also tends to be most difficult to add to an existing uh, process or environment. Now, if you're in the design or concept development stage, it's easier to build those controls right in. But for an existing process, making those changes to to eliminate or substitute can be a little more challenging. Uh, Now, if the work environment can be physically changed to to prevent exposure, uh, that's an engineering control. Examples would be a a built-in barrier, an isolated space. Uh, We're talking fall protection, but you've probably heard of using less hazardous chemicals, things like that. And again, these are independent of worker interactions. Now, the initial costs of engineering controls could be higher than administrative or even using PPE, but often the long-term operating costs are lower. And in some cases, uh, over time, they can provide even a savings because you're not constantly following up with everyone. Uh, Passive controls don't normally require as much maintenance. And if employees can change the way that they do their jobs, uh, that's a work practice control or administrative control. That would be things like inspecting uh, equipment, uh, maintaining good housekeeping, keeping up with maintenance schedules making sure that a problem's not gonna arise. Now those administrative controls, they do require workers to actually do something. Uh, And that means you're probably gonna have to train workers to understand warning signs, how to safely conduct an inspection, what to look for. Uh, Now this reduces the time, some things you can just reduce the time that someone's exposed to a hazard. These administrative controls seem like they're relatively inexpensive to create and implement. But over the long term, they I kind of hinted, they can be a little costly to sustain. They require constant input. And again, they might be a little less effective than other methods. All right, so your first step is to conduct a hazard assessment. Now, that's an evaluation of the workplace to look for uh, sources of hazards or potential hazards to your employees. There are some OSHA regulations that require a hazard assessment. One is 1910.132, paragraph D. 1910.132 is a PPE standard, and it says the employer must assess the workplace to determine if hazards are present or likely to be present that would require the use of personal protective equipment. Now, most types of hazard assessments, like a job hazard analysis or a comprehensive safety audit, they're not addressed in the regulation, but they are viewed as best practices doing those self audits. The OSHA standard here doesn't specify who must conduct or certify a PPE hazard assessment. So anyone with the necessary skills and experience to identify hazards and select appropriate PPE controls could do that function. But the employer could designate someone to do this or even bring in a third party to help with that. So once you've characterized the nature of the identified hazards, you start to look for control measures and prioritize them for control. So in general, um, you might take the following actions. First, you might find a new method of doing the job, like analyzing different ways of reaching heights in the safest way possible. You might change or modify the physical conditions that create the hazards. Uh, You might eliminate or reduce hazards by changing work procedures. You could potentially reduce the necessity of doing a job or the frequency that it must be performed. At least that reduces exposure time. And, of course, you might have to provide personal protective equipment for your employees, which you do at no cost to them. Now, in most cases in general industry, where a worker would be exposed to a fall of four feet or more, hopefully you can put in guardrails, but that's not always possible. I mean, sometimes employees need to work on top of machines or other locations where people don't normally go. So here's an example. Uh, you can see in this image, the employer installed some fall arrest systems and workers are tied off. They're wearing harnesses, probably not feasible to put a guardrail around the top of this machine. Uh, but another thing to think about is how they get up there. They might use a ladder, for example. So the procedure would be they put on the harness, then they climb the ladder. When they get to the top of the ladder, they hook a self-retracting lanyard into the D-ring, and then they finally step off onto the top of the machine. Now, we do sometimes get questions like, well, what if they're only up there for a couple of minutes? You know, OSHA's take is there's no safe amount of time that someone can be exposed to a fall hazard or can work in an elevated area without fall protection. So I have heard safety people complain that workers skipped using protection because they're like, well, it's just going to be a couple of minutes. But if there is a fall hazard, they do need to use fall protection. And again, if it's possible, maybe you can change or modify the physical conditions that create the hazard. Uh, an option might be to install a ladder and put up guardrails that meet the standard, if that's possible to put something around the machine. Or another option would be to move the equipment to, uh, that needs maintenance down closer to four level or reach it with a stepladder. Now, eliminating a hazard still present can be done by changing work procedures. Not all falls occur from heights. And as Mark mentioned earlier, that there's, there would be trip hazards that could be eliminated by having a procedure that requires extension cords and other tools be put back in their assigned place when you're done with them. Uh, it's just good housekeeping. And that can apply to anything else. Uh, general, in fact, OSHA's general indi- industry standard for housekeeping is 1910.22. It's in the walking, working. And it's one of the most cited regulations. Now, reducing the necessity of doing a job or the frequency that it must be done, that's an option. Uh, Reducing job frequency, it contributes to safety only because it limits exposure time. So, I mean, while the person's up there, they're still exposed. So, you do want to make every effort to eliminate hazards and prevent accidents by physical or environmental changes. And of course, when you need to you have to provide personal protective equipment for your employees. Again, especially for fall protection, it's at no cost to them. All right, I'm gonna turn it back to
1: Mark to talk about some more strategies. Excellent, thank you. And we are getting some questions, so please continue to send those in so we get a chance to look at them in advance uh, so we can answer them at the end. We've got some good ones. All right, so let's move on to the second strategy for fall prevention. And uh, passive methods. These would be guardrails, covers, fall restraint systems, that type of thing. Now, this example uh, is a passive method, a specifically designed floor mat, and this is for the restaurant industry. And uh, these mats are available for all different types of industrial and manufacturing environments. So if you think this is going to work for you, and I, it, They're used quite often. Uh, Definitely wanna check them out. So here we see a guardrail system and what is a guardrail system? Well, just what it it looks like here, a physical barrier. It's used uh, alongside an unprotected edge. Uh, Maybe you have an exposed uh, area, edge, whatever, uh, or uh, other area of a working, walking surface. Now that's what we're talking about here. and we want to prevent workers from falling to that lower level. Guardrails, though, now OSHA is very, very specific. Uh, they have to have a top rail and a mid rail. And the top rail has to be able to withstand 200 pounds of downward or outward force in the event somebody would fall against that guardrail or lean against it, whatever. And then there has to be a mid rail, and that has to be between the top edge midway between the top edge and the surface below. And you can see uh, this also has a tow board that may be necessary if things can get kicked and then fall to a lower level, maybe strike somebody. Here are, are things we see all the time in manufacturing facilities. It's a cover. Uh, so this is can be secured, it can be removable, but it has to be strong enough to prevent workers from falling into or through a hole. So they put this cover over there. Now this cover would be different than a cover that was in a manufacturing or a loading dock area where a forklift was gonna be driven over it. So it just all depends on you know what, what area it's going to be in. So this one looks like it's just in a general walkway. All covers should be uh, regularly inspected to make sure they remain secure intact and they can withstand the forces that may be imposed upon them because if this is a walkway cover and something heavy gets rolled over it, it could break it and you have to, of course, replace that. Oops, excuse me. Travel restraint. Now, these are really interesting. It's exactly what you see here on the slide. So this eliminates the possibility of a worker going over the unprotected edge or the side. Basically, uh, you design this, or it is designed for you to let that worker travel just far enough to reach that edge, but no further. So they physically, because they're wearing uh, either a harness or a body belt, they can't go any further. So these typically are combinations of a body support, like I just mentioned a harness or a body belt. This is one of the few places that OSHA allows a body belt to be used. Uh, They do not allow it to be used in any kind of a fall protection. So, uh, and then we have the anchorage, we have that connector, and then we have a lanyard. So very important combination. So moving on here, we're gonna talk about a ladder safety system. You see these all the time. They're very interesting in that they uh, are designed to eliminate or to reduce the possibility of somebody falling off this fixed ladder because they can't. And it's made up of a carrier, a carrier safety sleeve. The person has a body harness on, uh lanyard, and then they have the connector. So the way this works is If the worker's climbing up this ladder and for some reason slips, that safety sleeve is gonna lock onto that carrier, preventing the worker from falling any further. They may fall a little distance, but once that safety sleeve determines that there's a fall, they are locked into position. And they're gonna stay there until they regain control of the climb, uh, or if there was a medical emergency or something, they'll need to be rescued. So this has to be designed, and this is important if you're going to buy one of these, so that it does not require the person to continually hold, push or pull any part of that system up and down. So that's the secret. It allows you to move up and down the fixed ladder with both hands for climbing, and it allows you to do work uh, when you stop climbing because you're going to be supported. And then finally, before I turn it over to Ed, safety net systems. Now this is a uh, construction requirement. You can see the regulation there, 1926.502. These are horizontal or sometimes they're semi-horizontal barriers. They typically use a netting system to stop workers when they fall before they make contact with a lower level or maybe there's an obstruction. Uh, You use them at unprotected sides. You can use them on low slope or even flat roofs, you can use them around openings. You can see here, um, this depiction, it depends on how far below the working surface the net is installed. The further below, you can see it must extend further out. And then general industry OSHA addresses safety nets at uh, 1910-29C, and that simply points back to the construction standard. But remember, when you're gonna use these safety nets, They have to be installed as close as possible under where the employees are working, but never more than 30 feet below the edge of that walking, working surface. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Ed.
2: All right. Thank you, Mark. And let's move on. We're going to talk about that third strategy, which is the administrative controls, things like designated areas, warning lines, and safety monitors. So I want to start out with designated areas. Employers can use these as fall protection in some situations. Now It's basically a warning line that marks an area where employees can work without using additional fall protection. These can be allowed on low slope or what are called flat roofs. Uh, it can't be used on mezzanines or any other area, only on certain low slope roofs. And employees do need training on how to set up the area. Now, these can be used for what OSHA calls temporary and infrequent work, if you're at least six feet from the roof edge. So an example might uh, of temporary and infrequent work might be changing the filter on a, a roof mounted AC unit. Uh, A designated area can also be used for work that is at least 15 feet from the edge. And at that distance, the work doesn't have to be uh, temporary and infrequent. It it could be a a job that takes all day or several days. But again, those are the distances. If you're within six feet, you need fall protection. If you're six feet for temporary and frequent, you can use the designated area. And if you're at least 15 feet, uh, even if you're gonna be up there several days, you can use a designated area. Now similar to that is the safety monitor in construction. Uh, OSHA does allow employers to use a safety monitor under 1926.501 and 1926.502. Now the employer does have to designate a competent person to monitor the safety of other employees. And they have a number of requirements to follow. They have to be competent to recognize the fall hazards. They have to warn the employee when it appears the employee is unaware of a fall hazard or is doing something unsafe. Uh, They have to be on the same walking, working surface and within visual sighting distance of the person being monitored. They have to be close enough to communicate verbally with the employee, and they cannot have any other responsibilities that would take the monitor's attention away from that monitoring duty. Again, this is only for construction. General industry doesn't have the monitors, but... um, it is an option. And another thing is that said, don't allow mechanical equipment to be used in st- or stored in areas where safety monitoring systems are used. Next up is the personal protective equipment. Uh, we've talked a couple of times about providing adequate and effective PPE for employees. Now when engineering, work practice and administrative controls aren't feasible or don't quite do enough protection, you do have to provide PPE and ensure its use. Now, this is equipment worn for a variety of hazards. Uh, you're probably familiar with things like gloves, foot protection, hearing protection, hard hats. Uh, for fall protection or really any type of PPE, it is the last line of defense against a hazard. Now, if an employer is unable to eliminate or protect against fall hazards through modifications to the work equipment, they are required to determine the most appropriate PPE that workers would need to use. And again, it's your last line of defense, uh, especially for falls from elevated platforms. So we'll talk about the different types. There's personal fall arrest systems, travel restraint systems, and positioning devices. Now, personal fall arrest systems are used to stop an employee in a fall from an elevated area. Uh, They consist of a body harness, an anchor point, and a connector. Connections might be a lanyard, a deceleration device, a lifeline, or some combination. Now, these harnesses have a maximum weight capacity defined by the manufacturer, and that includes not only the person, but any tools or equipment they're carrying. So if there is a need to use a personal fall harness for someone who is outside the, uh, the listed capacity, you probably need to contact the manufacturer and you might need to get a custom harness based on weight uh, it's designed to retain, it's designed to uphold. And it is important to note the requirements, again, Mark mentioned body belts cannot be used as part of a personal fall arrest system. It's gotta be the harness. Now, a positioning device is made up of equipment and connectors that here you could have a belt, or it could be a harness, and the purpose of the positioning system is to let a worker uh, be supported on an elevated or vertical surface, think of a wall or even a windowsill, and it lets them work freely with both hands, and again, here a belt can be used. And I'm going to turn it back to Mark to talk a little bit about inspections.
1: All right, if I can get on the right slide here, I will. All right, Ed, thanks. And keep these questions coming in because we were getting some, but we, we like to have quite a few. So, all right. So let me get here. All right, now we know this, uh, but any kind of PPE should really be inspected before each use, but especially fall protection equipment. And that is required by the general industry standard and the construction standards. And why do we care? Why do we want to inspect this? Well. It helps you identify and correct problems before they can cause any harm, makes a lot of sense. Now, these inspections also have to be done whenever workplace conditions have changed since the last inspection, like when a body harness accidentally comes in contact with a chemical, or maybe uh, it got exposed to excessive heat, that can definitely damage that. And with the fall protection harness, you don't wanna take any chances. Also, if that, Fall protection equipment, the harness and lanyard, heaven forbid they're in, uh, involved in a fall, they cannot be used again until inspected. And the odds of them being used after that are pretty slim, in my opinion. Now, OSHA doesn't incorporate this ANSI standard, it's ANSI ASSEZ 359.2. And in section 5.2, that specifically requires that fall protection equipment is inspected by a competent person at a minimum of every 12 months. And if the manufacturer requires it, it can be done more than that. Now, this uh, is not incorporated by OSHA, as I mentioned, but it's a very good best practice because these types of equipment can get damaged pretty easily. The process in this inspection, they don't say how to do that, but of course it should be in writing. And by referencing this ANSI ASSE standard, section 5A1 of the general duty clause, uh, you could get cited for that. Uh, Just because it's not uh, incorporated doesn't mean OSHA won't cite you for it. Now, here's some things that you wanna look for Uh, when you're doing your inspection, look for any damage, you know, deterioration, things just get worn out, parts can get broken or bent, pay attention to anything that can infect that integrity. We got the list here, I'm not going to read it all off. But I mentioned, you know, heat and chemical damage, that's a big one, you can see uh, a lot of these things are pretty obvious. All right. So The person there on the slide image is doing a good job. They're literally looking at every inch of their harness. They're looking at the buckles and that's exactly what you wanna do because before you put that thing on you wanna make sure it's gonna do its job. Now I knew a a professional safety guy. He mentioned to me one time, he got a brand new harness uh, from the manufacturer. He took it out of the packaging and decided, hey, I should really take a look at this. And he inspected it and he discovered there was a section that the stitching was coming loose. Okay, so it was defective. It came from the manufacturer. He wasn't too happy, he sent it back. So that's just kind of a reminder that, you know, even new PPE, give it a quick look because you just never know what you're gonna get. Now fall protection gear. This stuff is, uh, I don't want to say delicate, but you have to handle it properly. This person has an area here that he's putting his fall protection harness in. It's called a designated storage area. This should be someplace that's off the beaten path. Um, It should be dry, cool, protected from chemicals, and definitely not having a lot of sunlight beating down on that equipment, because that will deteriorate it. Same with hard hats. Also tell your employees if you know, they see any fall protection equipment that's, you know, just laying around and like on the floor, you know, on a cabinet somewhere. It's not stored properly, obviously. So they should get in contact with their safety person, or they should bring it somewhere. But it should definitely be inspected because maybe... Somebody took it off and decided not to wear it because it, it wasn't right. So there you should have a company policy on that, that things be returned to your designated area. All right, maintenance. Uh, maintenance is very important, just not only for fall protection equipment. Uh, so if you do find something uh, wrong, you know, report the damage, remove it from service, make sure it's it's not used again, put some kind of de- warning device on it. Now, if it's damaged beyond repair, which, like I said, if somebody falls in a harness and a lanyard, it's pretty much, in my opinion, done. You do need to destroy it. As mentioned earlier, uh, impact loading, you can have the competent person inspect it, and they will, of course, make that final, you know, declaration that, you know, it's gotta be destroyed or well, we can use it again, leave it up to them uh, to make that call. And then as always maintenance work on all other forms of fall protection, perform that per the manufacturer's recommendations. I know, you know, it seems like, oh, whatever, but there are specific requirements for um, doing maintenance work on some of the stuff. So especially if the repair involves a structural integrity uh, of a walking, working surface, the surface you're walking on that we're talking about here, that's gotta be done uh, or supervised by a qualified person. Ed, I'll turn it over to you.
2: All right, thank you, Mark. I'm gonna kind of wrap things up with talking about the uh, construction requirement for developing a rescue plan. And frankly, if you have workers in general industry who are using a, a harness, you know it's, it's a good idea also, because you wanna promptly rescue employees. Uh, The construction requirements include establishing verbal contact within six minutes and rescue within 15 minutes. Uh, That's 15 minutes is the threshold expected for a healthy person to avoid certain complications like blood clots. Uh, If you've heard of suspension trauma, that can include blood clots in the legs. And frankly, that can form in even less time if employees have medical conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure. Uh, If clots form, it's probably not going to be obvious at the scene. So you do need medical attention. At a minimum, emergency medical service and EMS should be provided. uh, But it's probably going to be a trip to the hospital as well. And in fact, once the person is down, you want to keep the torso and head elevated in case any clots break free. And again, you're going to be off to the hospital. Um, there's also some argument between a full deploy of fall protection, like a rip stitches or a lanyard, versus just getting caught, like if you step over an edge and a self-retracting lanyard catches you and you didn't actually really fall. Self-retracting lanyards, SRLs are, are generally considered a, a superior in most situations, but you still may have someone who needs a, a fall rescue. So let's talk about that plan. Uh, there's going to be three components. First, who's going to do the rescue? You want to consider both your internal and external resources. You know, after the fall, the workers on site should know, have a plan to get to and rescue the person, even while they're waiting for outside resources to respond. So uh, brainstorm possible options here and and help coordinate the response between the on-site workers and and any responders who are coming to the scene. Size of the job site, they may not know where to go. Then consider, second where the rescue may need to be done. And again, think about the fall hazards at the site, and that's going to depend on your tasks and your environment. And a survey or risk assessment can get you thinking about where you need to go. Uh, certain equipment you might need would have to be run through there. Talk to one of our guys who uh, was a safety manager. He said, well, you know, you're running through a warehouse with a ladder to try and get up to somebody. It can get a little awkward at times. And another thing to think about the third one, what equipment are we gonna need? And again, that's gonna depend on what fall arrest systems are used. So consider where the worker could end up after falling. You know, someone using a lanyard attached to an overhead anchor, we had some shown on, on top of a piece of equipment. Uh, they're gonna fall straight down, but someone attached to a horizontal lifeline could end up further away from the fall location. It could be anywhere along that sliding line. Now, in some cases, self-rescue is an option, but most of the time it's not going to be feasible and consider that the worker might be injured or even unconscious. So, you know, your equipment could vary from a ladder to a scissor lift to get the person down. All right. Now we talked about uh, suspension trauma. There's a condition called orthostatic intolerance. And frankly, if you've ever stood up too quickly and felt lightheaded, you've had a light version of that. But over time, the pinching of the blood vessels that can result in serious physical injury and it could even cause cause death. And this can happen as little as 30 minutes or less. And that's suspension trauma. We want to avoid prolonged uh, suspension. So OSHA recommends that you rescue suspended workers as quickly as possible. Uh, Be aware that they're at risk of this orthostatic intolerance. Be aware of the signs and symptoms of it. Again, feeling lightheaded. People might pass out. Uh, Be aware that it is potentially life-threatening and especially for workers who have head injuries or were unconscious, they're particularly at risk, and consider any factors that could increase the risk of suspension trauma. And finally, uh, your rescue plan should address procedures that um, look at the potential for suspension trauma. Your rescue procedures consider things like how the worker will be handled to avoid making any injuries worse. I mean, we don't wanna make the patient worse. So consider things like, uh, okay, if self-rescue is impossible or can't be performed immediately, you can train the worker to kind of pump the legs frequently to activate those muscles. And it helps stop the blood from pooling and get circulation going. If they are against a wall, they can use footholds to alleviate pressure as well and, and do that muscle pumping. Uh, Continuously monitoring the suspended worker for any signs or symptoms of intolerance or trauma. Ensuring the worker receives trauma resuscitation once they're rescued. And again, if the worker's unconscious, keep their air passages open. First aid may be necessary or even uh, something more serious. And again, monitoring after rescue and getting evaluated by a healthcare professional. Uh, the worker should be hospitalized when appropriate, but at minimum get checked out by a healthcare professional. Remember that certain delayed effects, even things like kidney failure could happen, but those possibilities are, are almost impossible to assess while on the scene. I'm going to turn it to
1: Mark to wrap things up a bit. All right, thanks, Ed. And keep the com- questions coming in. We're getting some really good ones here that we'll be able to answer. All right, today we talked about three main types of hazards. I mentioned unsafe environment, unsafe equipment, unsafe behavior. Then we talked about the three best practices or strategies, as you will, to prevent falls. We were gonna eliminate the hazards. That's always number one. Uh, and then we're gonna use passive methods, guardrails, covers. And then administrative controls, Ed talks about, you know, um, and those are all very important. And then we talked about training workers on the use of personal fall arrest systems, how to inspect them, very important. And we covered having a plan, I did uh, just a minute ago about how to rescue workers. And that is also very important. I'm gonna turn it over to Ed.
2: All right, so we're about to move move into our Q&A session. You still have time to send them in. And I want to once again mention the sponsor of today's webcast, which is JJ Keller Training. Whatever your company's needs, JJ Keller Training can help, and we have 24/7 access to hundreds of online courses, streaming video, and training across multiple industries. So if you missed the opportunity or you joined us late, we are offering a complimentary white paper on safety training basics when you request more information on JJ Keller Training. So use the poll on your screen and we'll be happy to send that out by the end of the week. And with that, I'm gonna turn things back to our moderator to start uh, going your questions for us.
0: Well thank you so much to you both for this presentation and before we start the Q&A we want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it does help us improve our future webcast. So our, our first question is generally speaking who is typically responsible for providing fall protection when a contractor's use, such as a window washer, would it be the facility or the contracted agency?
2: So the uh, the company that's going to be responsible for providing fall protection is that individual's employer. Uh, they're the ones who are going to have to buy it and train them to do it. When you use contractors, you're probably not providing supervision on their work, but uh, which, which makes some people, I wanted to take this one because it makes some people think, oh, well, it's the contractor's responsibility. Uh, that's true, but OSHA does have what they call a multi-employer citation policy. You can find it online. Uh, I forget the CPL number, the compliance directive number, but OSHA has an extensive multi-employer citation policy. And they, they define four categories of employers, like the exposing employer, the ones who's in, whose workers are exposed to the hazard, but they also have things like the correcting employer and the controlling employer. Now, the controlling employer can be someone who has the authority to make other people correct hazards. So if, for example, you're using a contractor and you see them doing something unsafe, you're aware of this and you you have the authority to correct it, like like telling the contractor, "Look, you need to get your people following OSHA regulations, or you're off the job." Uh, if OSHA s- thinks that you could do that and you didn't, you could potentially be cited uh, as the as the cor- as the controlling or correcting employer. So that's a big deal. Uh, we've had a lot of questions about contractors like that lately. So even though the the empl- the worker's employer is primarily responsible. Uh, do be aware that OSHA recognizes that the other, another employer on the site, especially construction sites and you know, your general contractor, might have the authority to require others to follow the safety requirements. And if they don't, they could both be cited, both employers.
0: Our next question is for Mark. Uh, do you have any charts that show the speed of your head during a fall? Foot. Uh, but- level fall versus a fall from elevation um a typical fall based on a six foot man or, or woman
1: sure um I don't have a chart but on the in the beginning I talked about this um how fast somebody's going to hit the lower level if they fell uh, and that would have pretty much applied to uh, you know everybody you know at the same weight okay so somebody a hundred pounds versus 200 pounds is gonna fall essentially at the same speed. So I mentioned that, uh, free fall velocity to impact when falling 12 feet, that's 20 miles an hour. And that's going to happen in less than a second. Um, and a person falling four feet, they're going to hit that lower surface in a half a second. And then I mentioned the person falling hundred feet, 2.5 seconds to hit the ground. Uh, I'm sure there are, uh, charts out there, but this will give you kind of an idea of how severe the fall could be.
0: Uh, This next question is for Ed. Um, Actually, we get this question. I feel like uh, we've gotten this question a couple of times over the years as well. Um, Is there a guideline for how high an unprotected edge has to be to qualify for needing guardrails? For example, a ramp that rises to about five inches above the sidewalk?
2: Uh, You know, OSHA actually only requires guardrails or other fall protection at four feet. And that's an interesting one. I'll get to the ramp in a moment. But we have seen things like, uh, you know, somebody said, well, we have a loading dock, but it's for a different type of truck and it's only 30 inches. Uh, so if the door is open, does it need fall protection? Well, technically no uh, by OSHA standard, but a fall from 30 inches, if someone pitches overhead first, you know, that's, that's, you could cause serious injury there. So technically it's four feet or more in general industry, but um, where you see them on ramps and things like that, it may be to avoid uh, equipment running over, or if you're pushing a cart or something. Uh, so there isn't, there isn't a requirement there, but um. And I, for something like five inches, probably not, but what might be a good practice, and I don't think OSHA could cite you for it, but what might be a good practice is if you've got steps with more than three stairs risers, you're supposed to have a railing, uh, putting a railing on a, on a ramp or something like that. If it's the same height, you know, once you get above about 18 inches or so, wouldn't be a bad idea. It's, it's not required unless it's, you know, there's some way to first people to trip off of there. But, um. So the standard is actually 48 inches, four feet or more, but there can be situations, especially as you're going around corners, things like that, where the railings are helpful to direct people. And even check with your local building inspector to see if they have requirements because local requirements might be very different than OSHA
0: requirements. Uh, This question is for Mark. And generally, what is the lifespan of safety nets and harnesses?
1: Well, That's going to depend on the environment that it's in. If it's out, you know, like a safety net, if it's been put in place for, you know, a couple of weeks, I'm sure it's fine. If it's been there, you are required to inspect those. Follow the manufacturer's recommendations because they may have some real firm data. They're not going to sell stuff that doesn't stand up to the elements. And harnesses, um, sometimes they do put a date on them. Typically, that is if they're being used constantly from the data manufacturer. Now, if you use wear a harness twice a year, and it's your harness, and you keep it somewhere safe and with no sunlight hitting it, and the, there is a date on there that says five years, it's probably going to last a lot longer than that. Now, how do you determine that? You're going to inspect it every single time. If the harness looks fine, then... There's no reason to replace it, but if you're using it every day, and again, manufacturers always have some pretty good data on this.
0: Uh, This question is for Ed. Can you explain under what circumstances a flag line slash stanchions are sufficient fall protection for low slope roofs? I've heard different things for 6 feet versus 15 feet from the edge, duration of work, et cetera.
2: Uh, yeah, so I kind of mentioned that a little bit when you're talking about, um, first of all, the warning line. It, warning lines are a little different in construction, and maybe I can push that to Mark there. But for general industry, you can find the requirements in 1910 28, 1910 29, and 1910 30. 30 has the training requirements. Uh, basically, if, if you're within six feet of an edge, you have to wear conventional fall protection. Uh, If you're at least six feet from the the edge and the work is temporary and infrequent, generally that means it's going to take no more than an hour or two. And it only comes up occasionally, like once a month. Uh, You can use those uh, warning lines in a designated area as a type of fall protection. Again, you have to be at least six feet out and for temporary and infrequent work. And then if you're at least 15 feet from the edge, you can use the warning line even if the work takes a lot longer, uh, even if it's multiple days. So it depends on the distance and OSHA has requirements for the height of the stanchions and the strength of the material and how, and tr- on training on how to set it up properly and things like that. And even enforcing a rule telling people they're not allowed to go within 15 feet of the edge. So there's, but yeah, you can find all of that in 1910, 28, 29, and 30, just look for designated area. And it's, it's pretty well spelled out. Uh, I don't know if Mark wants to cover anything for warning lines under construction.
1: Uh, I think we'll just go on to the next question. It, okay. These things are pretty involved, and we, <laughs> wanted to, we want to get to, – you did a great job answering that. We want to get to some other questions.
0: So, this question is for Mark. I, I thought if any part of the harness, lanyard, et cetera, is involved in a fall, the whole thing needs to be pulled from service for either discarding or proper repair by the manufacturer.
1: I agree completely. Um, So, it should be inspected, okay? And Ed mentioned something before, too, like if somebody – fell and was caught by a self-retracting lifeline, that may not have damaged it in any way if they only fell just a couple feet. All in all, if I was a safety person and somebody fell in any kind of harness with a lanyard, I would pull the whole thing out of service. Do I want the liability to look at that and go, oh, this is fine, and then give it back to the person and, and have it not be fine? So in that case, the best practice would be to return it to the manufacturer or if it if, you know, it's a if it's a rip stop or something lanyard and it's been deployed, that's no good. You can't use that again. So the same with the harness when in doubt, 99.9 percent of the time, liability wise, I would not put that back in service.
0: Question is for Ed, what are the OSHA regulations for catwalks?
1: Oh,
2: that's a good one. So catwalks are a little challenging uh, to find because OSHA actually calls them runways. So if you're searching in the regulations, I was just looking in 191028, uh, 28 uh, has a good bit on them. It talks about, obviously, if they're more than four feet above a la- lower level, you need a guardrail system. Uh, if, if there's some exceptions for that, OSHA says they need to be at least 18 inches wide, and you might need to do uh, fall arrest systems depending on you know whether guardrails can or not are not usable in some areas. But catwalks are, they're pretty straightforward. Um, like I said, the, the challenge is if you're searching OSHA regs for them, OSHA calls them runways. They define them as catwalks in, in, the, in the beginning, the definition section, but throughout the regs, they don't use catwalks, they use runway. So if you look for that, you'll find a little bit more uh, on them. And like I said, basically, if they're more than four feet guardrails, if that's not possible, fall protection and a minimum 18 inch width, that's the majority of what OSHA lists for them.
0: It's like we have time for one more question. I'll I'll throw this one to Ed again. Uh, What about using local fire departments for rescue plans?
2: I think that could certainly be an option. Uh, Do check on their response times, though, and what kind of equipment they're going to show up with. Because if you're going to call the fire department, uh, are they going to be able to get equipment to the location where the person is suspended? Um, You know, if it's an indoor area, for example, we had uh, people shown on top of a piece of equipment. Uh, it sounds great to have a fire truck with a ladder, but they're not going to get that in there. So do they have the training they would need to do the rescue, things like that? And what's their response time? Because if it's going to take them more than 15 minutes to get there, that's a long time for the person to be hanging. So certainly consider them, but uh, see if they can provide uh, appropriate response times.
0: Well, thank you so much to you both. Um, this ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank our awesome presenters, Mark Stromi and Ed Zaleski the entire team from our sponsor, J.J. Keller, and of course, all of our listeners. Take care and have a safe day.